Reading now from Genesis 45. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, send everyone away from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and that the household of Pharaoh heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, so dismayed were they at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me. And they came closer. He said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it's not you who sent me here, but God. He made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. You shall settle in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children, as well as your flocks, your herds and all that you have. I'll provide for you there since there are five more years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have will not come to poverty. And now your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my own mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father how greatly honored I am in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept while Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here's a question I cannot answer. What does God cause? I know some of the things God does, creates, instructs, judges, loves, redeems. I have a sense of what matters to God based on the scriptures and on what we know from Jesus' life. I have an inkling of what the kingdom of heaven is like. But I don't know how to sort out what God causes. There's some who will tell you that nothing happens outside of God's will, but I'm not sure what that means. Does it mean that God could prevent it and doesn't and therefore wills it? Does it mean that God wants whatever happens to happen? I can't believe that. 
I can't believe God wanted Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery and for his father to grieve his supposed death all those years. I can't believe God wanted them to suffer like that, wants anyone to suffer like that. I can't believe God wants anyone to be abused. I can't believe God wants anyone to suffer with disease. I can't believe God wants 600 people to die in a mudslide. I can't believe God wants terrorists to kill and to incite panic. I can't believe God wants someone to be run over for protesting hate or two officers to die in a helicopter crash trying to police a violent scene. I can't believe displays of racial bigotry or ethnic bigotry or religious bigotry is something God wants. I can't believe war with all its loss of life and mental and physical suffering that accompanies it and the destruction of God's good creation and the use of all those resources to kill and to maim and to destroy rather than build up and educate and feed is what God wants. But then... It's easy enough for someone to point to passages in the Scripture where God is quoted as commanding war. We'd have to study each to know why. Sometimes it was for land acquisition. Sometimes it was for defense. Sometimes as a punishment. But it's there. Based on Scripture, the argument could be made that God willed war in those instances for those purposes. But I can't possibly imagine God wanting war. That God would be glad about war. After the Exodus, when Miriam and Moses looked back on the miracle that just happened, the Israelites having escaped, crossing the Red Sea that had suddenly become dry, the drowning of Egyptian soldiers in that same waterbed, They sang praises. They praised God for the miracle that had happened. We might imagine how they felt. 400 years of slavery and oppression. 600,000 men, besides however many women and children, now having escaped. And then when they thought they were going to be free, being chased down and cornered with water in front of them, nowhere to go until suddenly, once again, God comes in and and redeems them, moves the water, lets them cross over to dry land. Then the water comes crashing down on their pursuers. You can imagine how they might have felt some gladness, some thanksgiving, some reason to give God praise in all of that. There's a Jewish teaching in the Talmud that says the angels were about to join Miriam and Moses in singing God's praise when God stopped them. How dare you sing for joy when my creatures are dying? God asked. What was a source of celebration and triumph for the Israelites 
Well, the story makes clear it was something that God caused on their behalf for their redemption also turned out to be a source of grief for God. God may have wanted the Israelites freed, but at least according to their tradition, God did not want the death of His Egyptian children. We're always on the edge of this sword. An unstable leader in another country makes us uneasy. We know he could do great harm and provoke a powerful response. We also know that the vast majority of those who would be killed by military action, indeed the vast majority of those being harmed by the already ongoing sanctions in place, don't want to harm us any more than we want to harm them. When war is talked about abstractly as though it's two teams on a game board, it's easy to characterize it as us and them. When war is broken down to that individual and this individual, the conversation is more honest and the reality more painful. My grandfather fought in World War II He never said much about it afterwards, but one story I have heard was that in the heat of battle, he picked up his gun, looked down the sight, and shot a man, killed a man who looked a lot like his brother. That stayed with him. The man he killed wasn't just a representative of another fascist leader in the world, he was a son. Perhaps a husband, maybe a father, a real person who in any other circumstance might have become my grandfather's friend. Proverbs is as conflicted about this as we are. On the one hand, it teaches when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices, and when the wicked perish, there is jubilation. On the other hand, it instructs, do not rejoice when your enemies fall. And do not let your heart be glad when they stumble. It makes me think that there's a distinction between wicked actions and the humans who get labeled as enemies. God surely does not want people so filled with hate that they march with weapons shouting racist chants and looking for ways to terrorize and demonize people who are African American or Latino or Jewish or LGBTQ. And yet those marchers who are thinking and saying and doing wicked things are still God's children. And as much as God wanted redemption for the Israelites who were slaves in Egypt, I believe God wanted redemption for the Egyptians. Redemption from being enslaved to hard hearts and evil intentions. I believe God wants that for racists too. I grew up in Rock Hill and from time to time... I heard about a sit-in that happened at McCrory's Five and Dime in 1961. 
John Gaines, Willie McLeod, Clarence Graham, David Williamson Jr., Mac Workman, Thomas Gaither, James Wells, Dub Massey, and Robert McCullough became known as the Friendship Nine. Nine students from Friendship College who went to a store where they had been allowed to spend their money on anything else, just not at the lunch counter. They went in and sat at the lunch counter and were arrested and hauled off to jail. In 2015, the solicitor of York County brought the same, the living members of the Friendship Nine, back to court, this time to clear their record and to apologize for the injustice that had happened to them as college students. In a nice bringing of things full circle, the lawyer who had represented them in 1961 was the same lawyer who represented them in that case. The retired Supreme Court Justice of South Carolina, Ernest Finney, the first African American to serve on the South Carolina Supreme Court. And the judge in the case in 2015 happened to be the nephew of the judge who ruled them guilty in 1961. The second judge, the nephew, said, We cannot rewrite history, but we can write history. The arrest of the Friendship Nine inspired Freedom Riders to come to Rock Hill in May of 1961. Among those on the bus was a young seminarian who is now a congressman, Representative John Lewis of Georgia. When he got off the bus, Lewis went into the whites-only section of the waiting room and was attacked and beaten to the ground. In 2009, Elwin Wilson admitted that he was one of the attackers. And he went to Washington to apologize. I'm ashamed of it. I hate to admit what I did. I'm sorry, he nervously told Representative Lewis. The men embraced and the congressman said, I forgive you. He went on to say, the spirit and the cause of the civil rights movement always was love and redemption, never malice or hate. Love and redemption. That's what God wants. There is no undoing of the harm that was done to the Friendship Nine or to Representative Lewis. We can't rewrite what happened. But we can seek to right the wrongs. Turning to God to redeem us from them. Somehow God got Elwin Wilson to repent for what he had done. For how he had been. His redemption is not worth all the tragedy and trauma that so many have gone through because of how he lived, how others are living like he did. Him thinking better, him doing better is not worth the pain that the sin of racial bigotry has caused and causes. But since it happened... It's worth celebrating the good that God has been able to bring from it. God has moved in the lives of these men to show us something of what love and redemption looks like. 
God moves in the aftermath of tragedy and grief and brokenness to show us something of what love and redemption look like. I personally do not believe that God causes traffic accidents or cancer or brain disorders or so many other things that we blithely blame God for. But I know that God can take suffering and redeem it. Use it to build compassion and empathy and mercy and love and redemption. I don't know what all God calls us, but I trust God to redeem, to take what is meant for evil and somehow use it for good. And I pray God keeps doing that because we sure do need it.